Well, um, my wife Beck and I are a few episodes into season four of Homeland, and we've pre progressed a few seasons since the last time I um, mentioned it in a sermon. And uh, in a recent episode, the main character, Carrie, is desperately trying to uh, persuade her colleague Quinn to join her on a posting to Islamabad. And uh, she pesters him, she badges him with all the work that she's done to get him there. She lays it on thick just how much she needs him. And then Quinn's response is brilliant. He says this, Here's the thing, Carrie. It's not about you. It's not about you. His cutting uh, remark exposes her self-obsession. She just can't think beyond herself. Self-obsession is an ugly thing, isn't it? Just think what it's like to watch The Apprentice. Contestants uh, bigging themselves up, putting others down. It's an ugly clash of self-centered egos. Yeah, we may well think, uh, as we read this reading today, that Jesus was thoroughly self-obsessed. It's me, 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 I, 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 from beginning to end. Well, what are we to make of that? This week at our, our team meeting, one of the team asked a brilliant question. They said, how do you think we should answer when a friend asks us how we can be so sure that we're right about Jesus? How do you think we should answer when a friend asks us how we can be so sure that we're right about Jesus? It's a great question, but I wonder if it's also worth thinking about it from a different angle. Why was Jesus so sure that he was right about himself? Why was Jesus so sure that he was right about himself? Because we're not meant to respond to today's reading like Quinn did to Carrie, dismissing Jesus for his self-obsession. Instead, we're meant to listen very carefully to what he confidently says about himself. And I think that will help us do two things. First, it will help us grow in our confidence of who he is. And second, it will help us understand why our response to Jesus has such serious consequences. If you remember last week, the Jewish leaders have taken issue with Jesus because he's just healed an invalid on the Sabbath. In verse 17, in his defence, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Well, the leaders understand immediately that Jesus is claiming equality with God. And so Jesus needs to go on the defensive, which is what he does, verses 19 to 29. He argues that as the son, he does the work the father does, the work of judgment and the work of giving life. But then in verse 30, Jesus changes gear. Verse 30, by myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. So Jesus stops referring to himself in the third person as the son, and he switches to the first person. I, 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 me, me, me. He does that because he's stepping out of the dock and he's taking the seat at the judge's bench as he is about to accuse those who accuse him. But just before he does that, before he presents this compelling evidence for the prosecution, he calls one last witness to defend himself. And that witness is the subject of our first lesson this morning. So first of all, the father himself testifies that Jesus is the judge. The father himself testifies that Jesus is the judge. Verse 31. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favour, and I know that his testimony about me is true. 
So Jesus is saying that he needs another witness to back up the extraordinary claims he's making about himself. But who is this another witness? Well, it's not John the Baptist, even though that's the person Jesus speaks about, verse 33 to 35. Even though John the Baptist did testify about Jesus, even though the Jews listened to him for a while, it's not him, it's someone else. Verse 36, I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I'm doing, testify the that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. Now Jesus isn't talking about two different witnesses here. On the one hand, the Father, sorry, on the one hand, the works the Father has given him to do, that's verse 36. And on the other hand, the Father himself. He's not talking about two witnesses. Instead, he's saying that the father is the one who testifies about him. So verse 37 doesn't add something to verse 36. It concludes Jesus's argument. It's as if uh, it says, uh, end of verse 36, the works testify that the father has sent me. And so the father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. The father's testimony about Jesus isn't separate to the works Jesus did. The works Jesus did are the Father's testimony about him. And when we look at the miracles Jesus did on earth, the only legitimate and logical conclusion is that Jesus was sent from heaven by the Father. Doesn't that fit with what we've already seen so far in John's Gospel? Do you remember Nathaniel? He was confronted with Jesus' supernatural knowledge, and so he confessed that Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus turned water into wine, he revealed his glory, and so his disciples believed in him. Jesus healed the official son, and so his whole household believed. So the works that Jesus did prove that he is the Son sent by the Father. That is at least one answer that we can give to our friends. If they say to us, how can you be so sure that you're right about Jesus? We can ask them a question in response. Have you ever considered the extraordinary things that Jesus did? Is there any other explanation for what is recorded about Jesus in the Bible than that he was God himself on earth? But the works don't just prove that Jesus is the son. They also testify that he's the judge of all humanity. And I think that must be the conclusion we're meant to reach, given the logic of Jesus' arguments. In verse 30, Jesus claims that he is the judge sent by the Father. And then in verses 36 and 37, which we've just been thinking about, he claims that the works prove that the Father has sent him. So Jesus isn't being self-obsessed and self-important. He's confident of this truth. The Father himself testifies that Jesus is the judge. Now, I'm sure that this is not a lesson Jesus' accusers wanted to hear. And it's certainly not a lesson many people want to hear today. But it's not my opinion or your opinion. It's not even the Bible's opinion about Jesus, as if the Bible were just a purely human book. It's the Father's opinion of the Son. As human beings, we love to put Jesus in the dock. And perhaps that is the question that sometimes our friends ask us. Uh, but, sorry, perhaps that's the attitude behind the questions our friends sometimes ask us. 
But if the father himself testifies that Jesus is the judge, then the tables are uncomfortably turned. And that is just what happens in the rest of our reading, as Jesus' hearers face a searching cross-examination from the judge himself. And that thought takes us to our second lesson. Secondly, the evidence against humanity is clear. Unbelief deserves judgment. The evidence against humanity is clear. Unbelief deserves judgment. So the second half of verse 37. You have never heard his voice or seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. Oh, of course, these these religious men, they've never physically seen Jesus, uh, God with their eyes. They've never physically heard him with their, their ears. But to say that God's word didn't dwell in their hearts is a very damning indictment. Because they've got God's word written. But it's as useful to them as words on a gravestone are to whoever's buried beneath it. Why? Well, have a look at verse 39. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, that you refuse to come to me to have life. Now they're right to think that eternal life is in the scriptures, but they're totally wrong about how they can get it. Because Bible study by itself can never give anyone eternal life. Only the Son could do that. You see, you and I could be the best Bible scholars for miles around. Um, our shelves could be packed with the best commentaries, a bit like my shelves behind me. Um, we, could we could dissect a text with um, minute precision in our home group before expertly putting it back together again. We could even li listen to the best preaching in southwest London, um, if only. But all that counts for nothing unless we come to Jesus for life. You see, these men... Uh, they chose for a little while to enjoy John the Baptist's light, but then they chose not to come to Jesus. That's the same for you and me and for our friends as well. We can choose to enjoy the lamps that shine for a little while. Books, preachers, friends, Bible studies, churches, even the Bible itself. But unless we choose Jesus for life, choosing those lamps is just a cloak for unbelief that deserves judgment. Jesus presses this point home from a slightly different angle. Verse 44. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Jesus has just spoken about what his accusers think. Remember that verse at 39? You think that in them you have eternal life. And now he expands that idea of thinking by introducing the subject of glory. Where do these people think they can find honour and glory? Who or what is truly valuable to them? Well, Jesus knows the answer. You see, they look for glory in and from fellow human beings, but they don't look for it in and from Jesus. So they are wanting others to approve them. They are wanting others to affirm them. In other words, they want people like them to judge them. You see, this is the massive surprise. It's not Jesus who's self-obsessed. It's them. They're so sucked in 
by their own self-importance that they can't see it. They're so in love with themselves that they can't love that they can't love God. It's another symptom of their sinful unbelief, for which the only right consequence is judgment. Verse 45. But do not think I will accuse you before the, the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you would believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. It's an extraordinary way for Jesus to wrap up. Moses was the great intercessor. Do you remember how he prayed that God would forgive the people and give them life? But now Jesus is saying Moses is not going to be your intercessor. He's going to be your accuser before the Father. Why is that? Well, because Moses wrote about Jesus and these people don't believe Jesus. So effectively, they don't believe Moses. Where does that leave them? Verse 47. Since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? I think it's, it's a desperate way to finish the chapter. In their minds, these highly religious men think that they honour Moses. They think they honour the scriptures he wrote. They think they've got eternal life. They, they're sure that they, they've got hope for the future. But since they don't believe Jesus, their faith is nothing more than a facade. It's almost as if they are beyond hope. The evidence against humanity is clear. Unde unbelief deserves judgment. Well, do you remember all the way back in verse 12, the people said, Who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? That is the last that we hear these people say. And on the face of it, it looks like they want an answer to their question. But at the end of the chapter... An ominous silence is hanging in the air. Because Jesus has stepped out of the dock. He stepped up to the judge's bench. He's called forth his father as his witness. The father himself testifies that Jesus is the judge. And then he presents the evidence for the prosecution. The evidence that is clear. Unbelief deserves judgment. So do these people really want to know who this fellow is? Or have they already decided that they don't? Well, what about you and me? Have we accepted the Father's testimony about Jesus? If so, let's revere him, let's honour him. Let's remember that he is our judge. And have we accepted the evidence against our own um, unbelief that, that is in our hearts by nature? If so, let's cry out for ourselves and for others for the gift of saving faith that comes to Jesus for life.